Hi, and welcome to the Eat Move Live 52 podcast. Excited to introduce my friend, farmer and author, Michael Bunker. When I first learned about Michael, it was on a podcast about writing. He writes a few things, both fiction and nonfiction. But when I first heard of him, it was Amish science fiction that caught my ear. Didn't really matter to me what Michael was writing, but how he was living. You see, Michael Bunker lives a pretty simple lifestyle. He and his family live off-grid. He doesn't have regular access to electricity, and he doesn't have always-on, always-connected internet. For most of us, this would make life almost impossible, but Michael actually used these limitations to his advantage. I followed Michael over the years, and I've learned a lot from him about the value of simplicity in one's life. I know you'll love his take on life, fermented foods, and even more. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I've been super yeah. excited because I keep hearing about you, and now I get to hear you. So it's so exciting. <laughs> well, you know, it's exciting to me, too. You know, I do, I do a lot of podcasts, but usually it's about, you know, selling books. And so this is, uh, this <laughs> is an exciting departure to we, actually talk about the, the bulk of my life. We promise zero marketing questions. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, I'm already in. Awesome. Well, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, I'm. Uh, I guess you'd call us uh, plain people. We we live uh, very simply, uh, almost an Amish-like. Although we're not Amish, almost an Amish-like life. We uh, live off grid, and actually beyond off grid in our uh, the bulk of our life, which means our our cottage and our farm is 18th century. It's pre-industrial. We don't use any power up there at all, and uh, we do everything pretty much like uh, our forefathers did. Not everything, uh, and we can talk about that. But uh, I'm also a, a, an author. I've written I don't know how many books. I've written quite a few books, both fiction and nonfiction, and constantly writing. And um, I also uh, serve to talk to a lot of people all over the country and, and world about not just off-grid living, but um, you know, independent type of living, simplicity, and. Uh, so uh, it's been an interesting, uh, I think, about 15 years now that we've been farming and, and living uh, something uh, of this kind of life. And so it's been an interesting 15 years. Well, I had no idea it was that long. Yeah, it's been a while. Was it like flipping a switch or was it like a sort of a gradual thing? I love that uh, that flipping a switch uh, idea because that's really how it got started. <laughs> but. We uh, we actually moved to an on-grid farm in uh, 1997, so that was almost 20 years, or maybe more than 20 years ago. However, I, I'm not bad at math, but uh, <laughs> we, we we had a small five-acre farm, and and it really did start with us with flipping off a switch because we, uh, as we would do things around the farm and water the chickens and all that. Uh, we would just ask ourselves a simple question. How would we do this if we didn't have access to this modern way of doing it? And, and when we were doing this, there was really, when we were starting, there was nothing on the internet. There was no homesteading pages, homesteading blogs. There was no foodie blogs. There was nothing. <laughs> and uh, we had Carla Emery's uh, Encyclopedia of Country Living was the only book we had. And, and we would ask her, and sometimes she would actually have in the book, you know, this is the way they used to do this. This is the way they would store eggs and all those things. So we, we actually started doing some of those things. And then uh, one day we decided just to turn off the power for a few days and to see how we did and to see 
kind of give us a view of what it would be like. And it was, uh, it was uh, eye-opening and earth-shattering uh, how really dependent we were kind of to this umbilical cord of, of, of the world. And so that's kind of how we got started. Literally flipping a switch, the breaker switch. We literally, we, t- we turned off the power and even simple things like making coffee, which, <laughs> you know, you made camp coffee before when you're camping, but if you had to do it and you hadn't thought about it beforehand, in other words, most people are living their lives and they've got their uh, Keurig and all of a sudden, you know, it's not only the power's out, but it's staying out for a while. Um, yeah. Those little things cause you to... Uh, it's, it's not panic, but you get into a mode where you're not, you're not able to think of a lot of things. You can only think of really one thing at a time, and it becomes very overwhelming, and you don't perform really well in mm-hmm. those situations. But, but so it's, go ahead. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I imagine that it it's almost like a it's like a time machine, um, but in a way you choose to go in it, and so it it has this like wow I chose this thing and now I'm overwhelmed, but I'll figure it out. Right, right. And, you know, you don't really have the feeling that uh, the, there's an enemy coming over the hill or that there's going to be right. riots or anything like that. So you're not you're not a, as possibly panicked as you would be in a real situation. But at the same time, it does give you a very uh, honest impression of how little uh, you really have control over what happens to you and on a, even on a short term. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. I have some idea of what it feels like for different reasons, and I can talk to you about that later. But how right. am, how amazing that you you chose that, and then you moved from that five acre farm to a really off the grid farm. Yeah, we moved uh, in uh, two thousand and five. We left uh, West Texas and moved out here to Central Texas, which was a harsher, uh, really kind of a harsher environment in a lot of ways. But uh, we did have more water. We get more rainfall here. And uh, so we expanded our acreage. We have about 25 acres here. Mm. And, um, and and we decided from the very beginning we weren't even running power in from the from the county. So uh, we, we didn't want anything to do with any of the grid utilities. We didn't mind having some power available to power cell phones, smartphone, whatever. And so we had a small and still have the same small little solar panel system that gives us a minimal amount of power when we need it. But most of the time we don't uh, – we're not – uh, hooked up at all mm. so you're still not pressing the on button on the keurig to get your coffee no no yeah. not unless i really 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 want one i mean if i really really want one i could hook one up i the the, the permutations i would have to go through to unplug everything and try, try to get enough power directed in it's funny because you know just to get on the air with you right now um uh, the the sun's really not up enough to to put a real good charge on our solar batteries. We have a pretty old solar battery bank. And so um, about nine or 10 o'clock is really not enough power to run everything I need to run to do this. So I've actually got the car. So I was, I was hurrying to get down here, (laughs) the car up to the battery bank and all this kind of stuff. And so um, that's the stuff people don't see. If I, if I have to do, have to do something that there are some hoops I have to jump through. Wow. Wow. Well, you really, it really kind of makes you aware of like how you sort of have to, to plan your life. And I'm, I'm sure that you've gotten sort of into a rhythm. It's just when something like this that's like unexpected comes up, you sort of have to, to scramble. It's uh, what is that um, resiliency, right? You've probably developed some resiliency over the years. Right. And, and there's a, really a lack of fear or any type of consternation. You know, if we have a, a cloudy 
a period. Sometimes we've gone seven, eight, ten days, almost a month before with almost no power at all. And it to us, it's just life. I mean, it's not mm. – I may not be able to uh, have a meeting with uh, my my literary agent. I may not be able to have a meeting with somebody that I – or maybe I just you know have to charge my cell phone in the car. Uh, and we do have a car. And so uh, for now, <laughs> we may be moving away from that, too. But, uh, uh, so it's just, it, it doesn't throw us off at all. If we don't have that, if we don't have money, we have food. You know, uh, we don't get we don't get worried about the thing. A lot of things that really set people into a pattern yeah. of stress and um, worry. Yeah. Yeah, that's very. Yeah. That seems it's really powerful. And it I, is I really I'm, powerful. I'm, I'm sure I'm, it's going to sink into us a little bit, too. Because like every time we learn something new, every time we have a, a podcast guest, we sometimes we, we turn off the at the end. We like to look at each other and we go, wow. It's like, you know, there's so many things we haven't thought of. And they sort of we sort of feel them for days and weeks and forever right. after. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. um so we kind of got it. So how this has like affected you positively, and you know, it doesn't really sound like it's affected you negatively. Um, like, but you still use modern technologies. Like right now, you're in like I know you're like in a sort of a shed, right, or a, like a, your barn or something. Yeah, it's a little office uh, that I've got. It's a probably a couple football fields from where my cottage is. Okay. It's down by the creek, and uh, I do have uh, some power down here for a laptop and uh, uh devices it's not enough of a creek where you could hook up like a water wheel for a generator it's a uh, uh runoff creek it really only runs when it rains oh, okay. uh, sometimes it, it doesn't really and it, then it runs scary scarily <laughs> <laughs> texas uh, it can get real scary when it does rain but oh, um okay. yeah we don't have enough power for that and, and i don't want it you know that's the, another thing is you know one of the first uh instincts people have is well why don't you get more solar panels or increase your ability? And that's that's uh, negative to our uh, desires. Uh, there's there's an inclination. Everything has an inclination or a leaning that that inclines you in a certain direction. And so we have we, we're very um, deliberate about our use of technology, and we actually think about okay, if we do this, if we added three panels, yes, I would I would be able to come down here and do this show, or or, or maybe six or eight more batteries. And we'd be able to have power through the night uh, down here at the office. And I could come to this show without thinking about it or having to do any extra steps. But I would also feel like, oh, you know what I could do is I could get me a small little um, refrigerator. And then, <laughs> you know, and, and it, there's an inclination. It's it's almost like, you know, being on the center of a rooftop and everything you do inclines you to something, you know. Yep. Yeah. We recognize that about ourselves. Yeah, if you get say, okay. if you get enough solar panels and enough batteries, then a, and an extension cord, you can have that Keurig up in the main house. Exactly. Yeah, and you don't think <laughs> I haven't thought that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you talk about guidelines for like what for deciding like what you're going to use and what you're not. And I've talked, I've heard you before talk about sort of this this process that you go through over time, where you introduce something and see how it treats you. Like, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, what we the, the term we use a lot is deliberate, and so what we do is we, you know, we start off our, the first time that we do any task or any job or any uh, project, we try to do it the hardest, old-fashionedest way. It's, and it's not always the hardest, but the 
the the way it would have been done before there were any of these uh, devices before the industrial revolution. So when we dug our root cellar, even though about four feet down, we hit about a six inch um, solid slab of rock. We busted through it by hand and we dug the whole thing by hand. We built the whole thing by hand, just like they would have built it uh, in the 17, 1800s. And because we wanted to know we could do it. And that if we had to do it in a jam or if something happened, uh, this was a skill that we would know. In other words, this isn't a skill that's uh, lost to the world anymore because we would have people come visit and you know we would be digging a post hole and they would hit a rock and they'd say, it's impossible. You can't get through this. And we'd say, no, you can't. We've actually gone. We built a 12 by 12 root cellar through a through a rock. And so um, wow. and then so the next time like when we built our cistern, if we want to rent a backhoe, I don't have a problem with it uh, because we don't have a problem with the technology. We have the problem, a problem with its tendency. Mm-hmm. And its tendency is to kind of rob all of us, the whole society with knowledge and courage and those things that we need to be able to do things if we have like the people that kind of scratched a life out here in the first place. And then uh, when we do adopt a technology, then we, we test it. We see you know, what is its tendency. If, if we like just having power down here at the office, uh, if I find myself um, buying more and more devices to plug in to make my life more and more comfortable and then, then the next step of that is okay. Well, I can't run this one thing, so I'll just get one more panel, and that, you know. And then, the, and then the next thing you know, we're, we're we're right back in the prison we kind of escaped. You're creating your own grid, and that sort of defeats the purpose, right? And I don't have any 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 qualms whatsoever with people that live off grid that are completely have their own grid as long as they understand that there's just X number of days that separates them from everybody else. In other words, uh, they're not really self-sufficient and self-reliant. And maybe they don't want to, and that's perfectly fine with me. But uh, I don't want them to be deceived into thinking that because they have solar panels, that somehow um, they've got a little uh, protective bubble from the realities of of the natural world, because you really don't. And... um, uh, what our, our main interest in is uh, maintaining these uh, skills and the knowledge as a seedbed for further generations and also for the benefit it gives us day to day in our health and our mindset and our, our freedom um, and all of those things. So uh, and, and it is a window people can look in and say, OK, maybe I don't want to do that whole thing. That sounds kind of crazy. I don't want to uh, I don't want to be in central Texas and not have air conditioning in the middle of the summer. But I may want to try this project and and learn from it. And that's uh, the other thing we're trying to offer. That is amazing. I can really relate, like somewhere deep, deep in my heart with that, creating a, a seed, seed, seed bank of skills. Yeah. Because right. I feel, so Roland and I went um, up in northern Washington a couple of years ago and took a primitive fire class. And in about three hours of trying, we had not started a fire, and it was really sad. It was like, okay, we, like, I know one person in the world, my dad, who can probably survive something close to, like, a food apocalypse, but I I don't know that him and I can do that. And there's a sense of, uh, like, homelessness and unbelonging to something that should be yours. It's like a squirrel. That's exactly right. It's like a squirrel that can't find its... 
it's um, nuts. Nuts, its own nuts. <laughs> right. But like, it, it, <laughs> right. It, it's like, holy cow, like this, it, it's something that should be yours that is not. And in order to get a some semblance of it, you you have to succumb to the the pool of whatever it is that what is now available as what we know as environment gives you. Whether right. it's the addiction to technology or to whatever it is that we, we succumb to because that's the void it's filling. Right. And it's like, wow, that is spooky that we're in that. And how can we gently step out of it without... Um, yeah, it's a, there's a disconnect in a, in our lives uh, with our with the actual natural world. We, we like you said, we've come to believe this technicist world is natural, and it really isn't. But um, uh, it, there's a disconnect uh, even with our own ancestry. So our own our own genealogy, where there's a disconnect. Where my grandmother um, was born around the turn of the 20th century, and when she was born, there uh, there weren't airplanes, uh, cars, there was, uh, I think they had radio, there was electricity, but nobody had it. I mean, (laughs) she lived, she lived in the country in Arkansas, nobody had it. And so within about, uh, 20 years of her life, people were flying in planes, people were driving in cars, there was uh, technology, uh, electricity, um, uh, and everything changed pretty, pretty dramatically. There was a book that I read called, um, Henry and the Great Society. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it's a story. It's a fictional story of this man named Henry who lived just like my grandmother did. And they, they lived on a farm and he had his family and um, they rode their horse to the store to sell their eggs. And, and it goes through pretty in depth into his life. And then in, in this very short period of time, it starts off with uh, they come and tell him, hey, uh, we want to pave the road. And that's how it starts pave the road in front of his house well as soon as they pave the road then the cars start coming down and it's not safe for him to ride the horses anymore so he gets a car well they come and pave his driveway so now the truck sales trucks come in and they sell him a washing machine a dryer electricity uh power into the barn and it's basically this one man's life and how how really really uh, uh and he's just a representative of uh, us as people um of how we've really just we became a whole different species, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we became a different, and 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 I'm I'm not condemning that, other than to say we ought to at least have a grasp or a hold on what we were, I, you know, the species that we were. I feel like if if you're awake to it, like if you bring a a sugar glider from Australia as a pet, you have to be aware of where it comes from. Right. Because you can't just like put it in your backyard with the hummingbirds. And so there's there's some sort of knowledge of knowing who you are biologically that allows you to care for what you can under the modern circumstances. And I feel like so much of what people come to us with I are all these our teacher Katie calls it diseases of captivity like all these like oh overweight or you know having metabolic issues or anxiety or panic attacks or circadian rhythm disruptions and they're all or most of them are paying tax on the environment that we are unconsciously inhabiting thinking it's normal that's right and what i'm hearing you say is that you've stepped back into what is more natural human habitat and and I'm really excited to learn about what that's done for you. 
The, the biggest thing that I can say that it's done for us uh, and for our children and for the, the other people who have learned is um, is a mental state of calm and uh, uh, clarity so that we, uh, we're not um, like this uh, future being that's ripped out of its uh, uh, its uh, 24-hour womb and then just cast ashore and in, into the uh, the jungle you know it, we actually are able to, to, to have a calm view. So when you deliberate and we try to live deliberately, you want to have a real understanding and not an artificial understanding. So the thing that I hear the most from people when they watch my YouTube videos or they uh, interact with us is they say, I think that is great, but I couldn't do that. I can't live without air conditioning. Well, somehow you are descended for, until 70 years ago from people who were able to do that. You know, until about 70 or 80 years ago, most of the, uh, the world did not have uh, readily available air conditioning. So I don't think that that's true, that you couldn't do it. I think there's a mental uh, issue here. And that mental issue is, I believe, at the root of the cause of a lot of diseases, a lot of health problems. I think it is a, uh, a huge factor in um, – and uh, people not doing things that are very simple to do that would be very helpful for their health and their life. And so, you know, we hear people say, I, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. Um, and and you, you name the task. I couldn't do that. Uh, I like my fill in the blank too much. Mm-hmm. And and so what we're really and I, and I don't mean this to be a, in a pejorative way, what we're really dealing with is a mental disease. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a mental illness. And, and I was talking to a friend the other day, and he, he, that's what he told me. He said, I just, I just wouldn't be able to do that. And I said, you know what? You're a lot stronger than you think you are. And it's really just the facts that you're considering that have convinced you that you can't. Mm-hmm. You have false facts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I I have a sense just because of, of how I grew up in Eastern Europe, and I've only been here seven years, I have a sense of that other world the no air conditioning no electrical something or hand powered like a hand powered egg mixer you know that i'm really i'm really good at that um (laughs) you know all these things that we grew up with like my parents have a root cellar so i know what that is you know it's it it's a sense of 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 being connected to something that, of course, you know you can do it. And that's why I keep planting things that die on me here in Southern California, <laughs> trying to figure out something's going to grow. Like, I'm not going to stop putting stuff in the ground because eventually, right. like, yeah, parsley's doing great. Awesome. Our so, lettuce must be good because things keep eating them. I know. Yeah. Darn yeah. things keep, like, eating it without <laughs> any trace. So I'm like, what did I plant here? Because I'm sure there was something here three days ago and now it's completely gone. Um, yeah. But it's 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 really the sense of like yes I can I just have to create the environment that I can do it. But if I'm if I'm going to be watching cat videos on YouTube, the the lettuce isn't going to be growing in the ground. So that's right. Th- there's yeah. a <laughs> there's a dedication to belonging that at some point you have to make in some there's way. The, there's so many levels to it too. You know the the number one antidepressant in the world is the soil. And a lot of people don't realize that's actually scientifically true. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the there, – there is something revelatory about actually growing something and then having it as a product that you eat or consume. And then you, you go a step further than that is when you're able to combine ingredients that you made all of it. And then mm. a step further than that is when you're able to create maybe a whole meal, 100% from stuff that you grew and, grew and or made. And, and it keeps going from that. But if you back back to where we started, which is just having your hand in the soil, 
uh, whether something grows or not is really immaterial. We we have a saying around here that that's that's really not up to us, and it mm. never has been up to humans to uh, to be guaranteed a product. Uh, the the duty of it to us is 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 ours. Mm. So the obedient the obedience is ours, and so um, and and we know that. So you know we plant and hope every year. We put our hands in the ground and we we do and 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 if we end up with a that's one of the reasons why you know some years you'll uh, we'll just have a bumper crop out here and we'll put up a ton of food and maybe the next year we don't have anything mm. you know and but we still plant and we still go through that because that's the health part of it that's the part that I we I think that our body needs um is uh that connection with the soil that uh alleviates so many of the stresses and uh, tensions and and despair of the modern age. It's very interesting because so many of our students will take um, soil-based organisms in a pill. They're, it's like a probiotic that's been extracted from the soil because scientists right. know that soil <laughs> is good for us. But, you know, and then they'll go separately to the gym and squat. And then they go separately to a tanning bed or take vitamin D. And then they'll go separately to expose themselves to a blue light, which is now like four hours of your day to get all these things you can get by just squatting in your yard and poking poking at some ground. And it's amazing that all of that is commercialized. So there's like four or five channels of profit going into that person who can just go out and be home. And well, it, it's a, it's the weirdest thing. It's like a matrix. Well, yeah, it's it's what they you know a, a metaphor for that is what they did with wheat. You know, with with uh, actual flour. You know, when you uh, originally and, and what I mean by a kernel, not wheat, the product, but a kernel of grain, mm-hmm. uh, and all of the, all of the good things that were in that that were uh, ground up into flour originally. Um, as they uh, uh, things progressed, they took out anything that had any vitamins, minerals, or value. And they stripped that down to pure white cake flour. And that's what the rich people got. Rich people got that. The bran and everything else that was in there went to the poor people, mm. which is actually where all the valuable stuff was. But then they started enriching it, so they actually sold it back to you. Mm. They stole it. <laughs> and, and that's just kind of a metaphor for, for life because that's what they're doing. They're, they're selling all of the stuff that's free back to you. So, you know, you can go to the gym and pay that fee and you can go – you know, I, I, you know, what is the first thing if you talk to somebody, you go, what are you going to do for your vacation? Well, we're going to go camping. Well, camping is just visiting the outdoors. Yeah. You know, it's visiting something that used to be your life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, 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 and, and, and unhappily, so many people try to take the world with them when they go. So they, you know, you know a $75,000, $80,000 camper and all, that, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But that's, I, it really occurred to me. All of these things were little revelations to me as as we went down this road. We would uh, When we very first moved out here, we, we had no water, real water source, and it was very rough. We were living in a tent, and we would drive to the nearest uh, state park, and we could get fill up water containers and that sort of thing. And I would watch the people in their you know, $80,000 campers all parked, you know, within eight feet of each other, you know, just like they are in the city and with these artificial uh, life support systems of the water and the cable and the electricity hooked up to that. And they left home to come do this Mm. uh, with the, with the only benefit is there might be some uh, view of nature. Yeah. And, and so that tells you what we're willing to pay to have a view of what is ours for free. 
Mm. As a birthright. Yeah. Wow. We come to it, you know, and I don't think we would have come to it if our own health hadn't led us to, you know, what we do for a living, helping people reclaim what health they can in an urban environment. But I feel like unless we start paying tax in some way, mentally, emotionally, physically, we won't wake up to this. I don't, right. I don't know that there's, there's enough canary in the, in the mind uh, signals that w- we can perceive until it's our own. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, health-wise, um, you know, th- that's the big major. Uh, uh, I think it's the major linchpin for a lot of people is they kind of go in one or t- of two directions when they start to even anticipate uh, the health problems that are ubiquitous with everybody now. They get the same uh, conditions. Is they uh, kind of w- do wake up to it and try to start thinking about other ways of dealing with it, or they go down that well-worn path of um, the, the pharmaceutical business and everything else that uh, has sprung up to, to monetize our bad decisions. Yeah. Well, this kind of reminds me, we have a chapter in our latest book. It's about um, gardening, right? So on the surface, it's just about gardening. But the reality is it's about doing all those things that you talked about. It's getting outside. It's like stacking all of these little things. Like just the fact that you're gardening you might think it's totally insignificant to produce like a head of lettuce after a lot of work, but you've produced a head of lettuce that you've been outside, you've squatted, you've knelt down on the ground, you've got your hands dirty, and now you're growing, you're eating something that you've grown, and that's like a powerful, that's a powerful thing. And people just really don't, and I hope it came across in that chapter, that that was the purpose. But like a lot of the things that we write about, it's it's all of these little things add up to a to a better, healthier, healthier lifestyle. So much more than getting on a program that takes you to the gym five times a week and eats a diet according to a meal plan and, you know, right. gets on this regimented schedule. So, yeah. Well, so, there, there's a, uh, there's an idea, there's an idea that you can shortcut a lot of that stuff. And I think that's one of the things people you know, I think one of the most popular memes that I've seen that go around uh, in the spring every year are these memes that say on Facebook and all that. And they say, uh, you know, gardening, a way to uh, grow a tomato for $5. <laughs> and so it, it is this real diminishing way of looking at uh, and, and and the problem with that, of course, is, that, you know, they're not adding in their health care costs. They're not adding in yeah. uh, depression. They're not adding in suicide. They're not adding in lost family members, grief. Uh, the destruction of our uh, uh, relationship with our children and our parents, our historical suicide, uh, those those have costs that are not being uh, included into this little comparison. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is that uh, the, uh, the people that do, the system will provide an out for people that do see that. And so what they'll do is they'll say, okay, well, uh, just buy better tomatoes. Oh. You know, just go buy better food. Yeah. You know, what, buy it from buy it from uh, Whole Foods instead of buying it from the grocery store. And they don't ever get back to the fact that the reality of the problem is I'm disconnected from the natural world and I'm the one that's deprived. Uh, the soil is depleted and I'm depleted and I'm not just going to be able to pay to fix that. Yeah, it's, it's not a dollar economy problem. We need to reverse meme this thing and say, you know, how a five dollar tomato can 
can save your life or can save right. you thousands of dollars in um, and a straitjacket. There's your next book right there. There right? we go. There you go, Rolling. Yeah. yeah. Michael just gave you your next assignment. I know. I know. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about specifics. I think we got a pretty good handle on how overall this thing, taking things a little bit simpler and being more. Uh, what is your what was your deliberate uh, deliberate can can right. kind of positively affect us but so when it but when it comes like to food other than growing a a five dollar tomato right what are some of the right. simpler things that people can do that has a po- have a positive impact on health like what's the biggest bang for the food buck uh if you're not able to um use animals wherever you live you're not able to have chickens or, or whatever I, I actually i say in my book uh, surviving off off grid i think that the the biggest benefit to any homestead or even if people can do it is to have chickens because it covers all of the gamut of everything in fact um, because uh, hopefully at some point you'll decide you want to grow some of what the chickens eat mm-hmm. so that your eggs are are, are not deficient and, uh, you know, have the minerals and things that they need because well, the eggs we get at the store are not just uh, cruelly, the chickens were cruelly raised, but the feed that the chickens got was deficient, minerally deficient. And so it has the form and the, the sense of an egg, but it really isn't an egg. And you can taste the difference. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, as far as training our mind, which is really what my whole program is about, uh, having chickens and then uh, trying to um, uh, produce a uh, historically correct egg, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and that's really what it, it, down the line. You know, um, as far as growing things in a garden, um, the I, I think the most beneficial thing uh, people can do is grow greens and uh, herbs and perennials, um, things like uh, perennials, things like uh, rosemary and sage. Uh, but uh, greens, uh, not only uh, are greens a way to learn about uh, soil nutrition and uh, re- people don't realize when you go and get that beautiful head of lettuce at the store, that is artificially, um, th- th- there, are, there are artificial ways in which that is accomplished that don't involve uh, a real uh, nutritionally balanced and uh, rich soil because they just can't afford to produce it um, that way. And so uh, ha- growing greens is a small way for someone to start seeing how that can be done and how you, you know, you, first, first you produce a mi- minerally rich, uh, uh, healthy green that then can become animal food and it becomes people food. Mm-hmm. It becomes an adjunct in uh, other products, um, sa- a sandwich, you know, so the, Maybe you do a small plot of grain or maybe you do uh, potatoes and, you know, you build up from that to a meal, even in a small backyard. My, my sister lives in Houston and she has a, a backyard garden and it's fun for me living the way that I do and seeing her. She's a uh, controller for a Finnish oil company. And so she, <laughs> to see her so that's uh, the same. excited. <laughs> yeah, excited about having provided an entire meal out of her backyard. Mm. There's a there's something revel, revelatory about that that will change you. That changes people, um, and then go so far as to make your salad dressing, and then go so far as to provide a meat uh, element if you eat meat, and then um, uh, to grow from there. And I said there's different levels of revelation. 
So uh, with me, it was, uh, you know, I, oh, I, I made this egg sandwich with an egg that I grew, right? And then, oh, then I, I, I grew the greens that are on this egg sandwich. And then, oh, I was able to make the mayonnaise or the mustard that was on. Then I made the bread. I actually grew the grain, grinded it, sifted it, you know, and 100% of everything that I'm eating in this meal uh, came right here from the land. And there's the, there's a there's almost an unlocking of your spirit and your soul that 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 revelation brings that you are actually a free an independent person who has kind of been co-opted into a system that you didn't ever really uh, deliberately sign into. You were born into it, and and it really does it really does have an effect on your health and it has an effect on everything else. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to go to, like, when I go to visit um, Bulgaria and go to Galina's parents' house, and they've got a huge greenhouse that they, they made themselves out of an old bus, like a, a windows from an nice. old bus. I know. It's really cool. Yeah, because it opens, right? You can air it. You can right. air it. Yeah, yeah. It's very cool. It's beautiful. And they grow, I mean, I think they grow all of their, like, all of their vegetables, all of their produce, unless, like, we're driving somewhere and her father sees something out of the corner of his eye at a fruit, at a stand and goes, oh, we're stopping for that biggest squash I've ever seen, right? <laughs> yeah. And, like, he'll go and he'll <laughs> haggle and he'll trade some of the stuff that he grew for some of the stuff that they have. And it's just like a, it's a great, it's, it's really fun. That's, that's a freeing economy right there. We, we call the, uh, the system that we have to interact with sometimes the dollar economy. And the dollar economy basically causes you to reduce the real value of anything you own to kind of a standard so that it can be exchanged for somebody else's freedom. And um, and what we try to do as much as possible is and, and there's it's the same question we ask all the time. So even if we if we're making a, uh, a loaf of bread and we're, we go, OK, uh, in this case, we made the wheat, we made uh, the, the butter, uh, we made whatever it is that we added to it. And then we're putting in yeast, and then the question will go is, okay, how would I do? How would I do this if there was a systemic collapse of the society, and we're months into this and um, need to feed a lot of people or need to feed ourselves? How would I? How would they have done yeast? And then you know you study about it and you find out yeast is everywhere. Yeah, it's like you, just, <laughs> you can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like you know, uh, it's like your lawn if it rains. You know, it's like uh, it just keeps coming and. Uh, but we don't know that, you know, as a, as a people, uh, it's 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 mind blowing for them to know that you could just because and we've also been told that everything that happens naturally to food is bad. Uh-huh. You know, that you know, if it's it should be sterilized from the beginning and anything that happens to it. Well, and if it is sterilized at the beginning, anything that happens to it is bad. But people are always like, oh, this, you know, this milk went bad. Well, it only went bad because they killed it first. Yeah. If it had never been killed in the first place, it doesn't go bad. It turns into something else good. Yeah. In fact, your ancestors used to take that gallon of milk and sit it on the counter and let it clabber because it was better for them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they liked it. They liked the taste of it better. And you read books. If you read books of the 18th century, clabbered milk was the thing. Nobody wanted to drink it right out of the cow. You know? yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, and, 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 but we, we were taught from, from being children that that's bad. And the only reason we're taught that is because they killed it first. That's why you have to have a refrigerator. You know, one time, and this is in my book, and I don't want to go off on too much on the side. One time I actually looked in my refrigerator and this was when we were living back in the, in West Texas and we had an on grid farm 
And I looked in my refrigerator. You know, everything in that refrigerator was a product that was made to be uh, to store food without refrigeration. So I had jam, jelly, butter, um, uh, ham, uh, uh, mustard, mayonnaise, even mayonnaise. Uh, every t- single thing that was in my ref- my refrigerator existed to refrigerate items that were invented to not need refrigeration. <laughs> they were all they were all things that were ways of storing. You know, butter was a way of storing milk. You know, ketchup was a way of storing tomatoes. Uh, you know, mayonnaise was a way of storing eggs and oil. Uh, every single thing that was in there, and that's why that was another revelation to me. I was like, well, we're actually paying the 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 refrigerator company and the electric company to put products in there that the originals of those products were made. So I don't need to do that. You know, it's so interesting. I've learned like so much from, from people like you and my wife, Colina about, about this type of thing. Like I remember the first time I ever made my own yogurt, I was terrified to taste it. I'm like, like I'm a, I just tasted like a half a teaspoon a couple hours later. I'm like, I'm still alive. So then I tasted like a, you know, I worked my way up. And the same thing when I, I made my own kimchi and I was like terrified to eat it. And um, I, I actually threw it away. Like I made this kimchi and I'm like, it doesn't smell like the kimchi that I get at the Korean market. So right. it must, I'm not eating this. And I threw it away. And same thing with sauerkraut, like all these things that I ferment. Right. And, right. you know, I, my first or second job, I worked at a restaurant, Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor and Restaurant. And they, I had to go through a whole class on food safety and things like that. So I'm really conditioned to, like, if something's been sitting out for more than an hour and it's under 140 degrees, you know, throw that thing away, right? That's right. <laughs> you know? And, and you really have to because it's yeah the way that it's produced. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. So, like, when... Galena would make something like roast, just roast some vegetable, roasted vegetables in olive oil. Right. And then it sits in the, you know, oh, we went for a walk or we forgot to put it in the refrigerator. I used to be like, oh, I'm not eating that. But like, what is it? It's like vegetables <laughs> roasted and all like there's yeah. nothing that could go bad. You know, like eventually, no. <laughs> eventually, yes. But like in I don't a few think days, a couple of hours is going to be a problem. So like I've learned, I've come a long way. Now I can, I will. I've made fermented onions and fermented all sorts of different things. I've made my own kimchi, yogurt, like an old hand. And uh, it's like, it's really, it's like a freeing. It's freeing to realize that, you know, you go back in time and, and like, this was like normal stuff. And nowadays, like this whole refrigerator thing, it's just, it's crazy. Like when I worked at the, at the, at the restaurant, like, we didn't keep our ketchup in the refrigerator. Like this is just regular ketchup too. This is not any of that fancy old fashioned ketchup. Um, but like we didn't keep the ketchup in the refrigerator, but like, well, so why do people keep the ketchup in the refrigerator today? Who wants to put cold ketchup on a, on whatever they're eating? Right. 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 But like, so how did we get, like we get conditioned that everything needs to be like mustard doesn't need to be refrigerated. No, it doesn't at all. And, and the thing is, it's, um, it's it's this big lie. There's a huge lie that we've been taught from the very beginning, and that is that there is a uh, natural world out there that is aligned against us. It, that its its plan is to kill us. And there's these microorganisms out there that that's all they want to do is kill us off the planet. Well, 
uh, I'm not, I'm not happen to be an evolutionist, but that's counter evolutionary. <laughs> and I, so even if you don't believe in that, which I don't, I just, I, I go, well, that doesn't even make any sense. And so, uh, you know, and so we're, we're I meet people all the time and they're like, uh, well, what do you do with this so that it doesn't go bad? And, uh, it, one of the uh, really interesting books that I read is wild fermentation by Felix Sandor Katz. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but this was a guy who, um, Actually, he had AIDS, and he decided that he was going to use fermentation as a way to treat himself. And he went down this process you're talking about where, you know, he started off fermenting a few things. And he's so extreme now, he just, like, gets some meat and sticks it in a jar and throws it on the counter. And, like, three months later, (laughs) whatever's in there, he eats it. And uh, and that actually used to be, you know— uh, once you learn some of the science of why we have sausages and bacons and things yeah. like that, and then we have the lie of comparing uh, the original to the fake one and judging the original by the fake. Yeah. And so, you know, if you gave people real ketchup, which was a way of just a way of preserving tomatoes, and you gave you gave it to them, they go, "Well, this doesn't taste like Heinz." No, that's not really true. Heinz doesn't taste like this. You're the one that's been imbibing in a fake, and so this is how it's supposed to taste. And if you still like Heinz after that, that's fine. But it's, but listen, but it's a totally are, different thing. Yeah, it's a completely different thing, and, and this product is is designed not to go bad. It's designed to – and even if it grows mold on it, it's a beneficial penicillium mold because bad mold can't grow on this medium. And so uh, this is how, you know, our ancestors survived for thousands of years is even if they didn't know the science, you know, they didn't know the science of yeast. They didn't even know that yeast was actually a living thing until the 1800s. Uh, But they knew that there was already on the grain or on uh, if they were making beer or if they were making whatever they were making, there was already on that or in the air something, some little factory that turned this into what they wanted it to be. And with lactobacilli, it was the same thing. They realized that if they uh, added salt or uh, something that inhibited the bad bacteria, that the good bacteria would take over and that that good bacteria was good for them. It was good for the flora of their stomach and their linings and all those kind of things. And um, and so we go down this process, like you said, which is actually the same process that our ancestors used to determine if any food, you know, they didn't just start eating blueberries you know, they didn't. Uh, we're the only species, really, that uh, as children test things with our mouths. You know, we stick it in our mouth to see if it's any good. But they didn't just go around eating things to find out what was poisoned. Like, oh, Chet died, so uh, <laughs> we don't eat that. They actually start off with little teeny, teeny, teeny pieces. Maybe they lick it and then they wait 30 minutes. You know, then they eat a little teeny piece of it and then, and then they wait 30 minutes or an hour. And then maybe three or four days later, they go, okay, this didn't have an effect on me, so this is an edible plant. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do with um, with real food is you start like that. And then, you know, you get to the point where uh, I don't even think about any food unless I bought it at the store. I don't think about it going bad. You know, if it, it may be unpalatable, but it's not something that's going to kill me if I eat it. You know, even meat is just mm-hmm. not going to. And so uh, if it's raised poorly. And under under bad conditions, then it can be dangerous and problematic. But other than that, I just don't worry about it. I mean, most of the time, the 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 changes in the food are to the benefit of the eater. Well, maybe we should be uh, 
when we crack open a jar of something we bought from the store, maybe we should taste it by the teaspoon. Yes, I'm still alive. <laughs> An hour later, okay, yeah. I can eat a little bit more. <laughs> well, yeah, and if you had a long enough timeline, you'd realize probably that that was actually what was killing you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, so one of the funny things, so we want to talk a little bit about, you don't just make food for yourself, but I also know that you make food and you, and you sell to other people, um, which... I'm the proud recipient of a box of um, your Michael Bunker meats, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And the reason that – actually, the reason that was funny – it was a funny story that got me interested into trying that. And I was waiting. And as soon as you posted that you had another supply, I'm like, I'm in. Because you had once said that the number one video on YouTube for how to store bacon long term was a guy taking it and putting it in the refrigerator. Right. <laughs> which, yeah. <laughs> which, like, I'm like, um, I get it. I mean, I guess, I then I thought at the time, I thought, why well, doesn't bacon have to be in the refrigerator? Um, but then I remembered, <laughs> like, reading this book called The Wild, Jack London, right? Right. And he was carried, like, a pocket full of bacon, like, wrapped, like, bacon and biscuits, like, just, like, for, like, his whole trip. And, like, didn't, and, yeah, it was frozen, but he was keeping it in his pocket so it would be warm enough to eat. So right. I'm thinking, oh, that's weird. Like, he's, that's pretty risky, but I guess it's not. So tell us a little bit about about the stuff that you sell, like the stuff that you make, and like why it's uh, why it's so great. Yeah, the stuff that we make is uh, it's actually cured. Now the word cure has been co opted by the industrial food system to mean it's made to taste a certain way, so it's flavored. So when you buy bacon at the store, even when you buy the good bacon, when you go buy the thick Wright's bacon or whatever it is, that is not a truly cured product. It's actually a flavored product, and they use liquid smoke. Most of those are cure, cured. And I'm using, doing, using air quotes within a day or two. Um, it's just a flavored product, and it really isn't um, It isn't uh, shelf-stable. It has to be refrigerated because there's no real curing of the meat. Curing actually means – that from the original product, another product has been made that is shelf-stable and does not go bad. And the curing of bacon and other meats was generally affected by the um, adding of salts and, and things like that in a, in a way and manner without refrigeration that drove out a good portion of the, the moisture and um, infiltrated the meat to, to the point where that meat actually became something different. And it became something that is uh, healthy, and at the same time, it's not it's not a viable food for bad bacteria. The bad bacteria can't survive. And so, you know, when the when the Puritans and Pilgrims came over here, they had um, barrels full of salted bacon, and that bacon uh, was basically dried enough that uh, nothing could grow in it that was bad. Lactobacilli could grow, and that changed the product into something that was a little bit more flavorful. And then whenever they were ready for some bacon, they would cut off a hunk. They would soak it in water for a couple of hours, maybe a day or two, uh, to get rid of a lot of the salty taste. And then they sliced it thin and, and they fried it up or, or they could actually eat it fresh because, uh, it, there, there was nothing bad in it that could make them sick. And so this is the way that, um, meats and in, in Northern Europe, um, a lot of things like sausages uh, became very, very popular because it was a way to store uh, your scrap meats uh, for long periods of time hanging. Uh, and and uh, Galena will, will know this. When you go into Eastern Europe, uh, you go into a shop, they have meat hanging right there at room temperature. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and can... it's common. You know, it's yeah. completely common. And so, and, and that always freaked me out before I got into this lifestyle because I was like, like you'd see that, and it actually still looked like a chicken. You know, if you watch The Godfather, you know, they're, they're going down, to, he's looking at the tomatoes or the oranges, and there's, there's like animals hanging in the background, and it's like the summer, you know? Yep. And it, yep. it, it didn't make any sense to me until I started studying it, and that's because that, that meat had been properly preserved or stored. And you, you could go down to the butcher, and you can get a hunk of uh, ham, or you could get a, a sausage or any type of cured meat. It was perfectly healthy, not only that, but it was actually a, uh, a, a benefit uh, to the health. And, and you know, we're finding out now that, um, like in Russia, the, the serfs actually ate what we would consider today to be an artisanal meal, and the rich uh, landowners ate garbage. Which is is true today too. Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I first went to Russia. If you could, if you went to um <clears throat> to a store like a like a supermarket, their chickens were there with the feathers. Right. And like in in our stores, we didn't have the feathers, so I was like, this is so weird that they have the feathers on, you know. <laughs> but you know, it's and, and in Spain, like if you go to a bar, there's usually giant ham hanging over you as right. you're drinking your drinks, and and people are smoking in there, like actual cigarettes, and it's going right. up and around, and it's fine. It just becomes a part of the favorite flavor profile. Yeah, yeah well, it's the the tapas uh, <laughs> culture. Yeah. It's actually one of the healthiest cultures in the world, and a lot of that is this is an almost constant uh, cheeses and sausages and smoked meats. Well, it was just fun to go to Bulgaria and see. Like, um, one of our friends owns a, a really big gym, and you go into the gym and you look up, and there's like sausages hanging in the rafters. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And and her father has like here's the clothesline, and like at the end of the clothesline, there's all my sausages. You know, like I, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting you know we've got a root cellar and i've got so much meat hanging in there it's kind of funny but uh you know uh based on the way that we lived you know like you said if it was out uh, for an hour or so you would just throw it away and you, you know you, you you lived with this terror of the food uh attack that was that was being made upon you constantly and it's so backwards it's so backwards to the truth but you know with our with our meat products it really started with that it was uh and when we very first moved out here, we would uh, harvest an animal and, or, you know, a pig or a cow. And, um, you know, we would take it to the butcher and would have, have a lot of that done. And then we would get it back in bacon and, and all of these type of things. And it was better than what we were buying at the store. But that question is always in the back of our mind. How would we do this? Mm. And so when we started actually, you know, uh, doing them ourselves – and uh, actually taking responsibility for the quality of our food and that type of thing. Um, you know, I would try to explain to people, and this is why we, we sell some of our product. We, we, we never want to get into the position where it's a dollar economy thing for us, where that's what we're doing to survive. So maybe we stop growing our gardens so we can do more meat products. That's never going to happen. So what we do is we make enough for ourselves, and then we sell any that we have that's that's over that. But uh, when, when we first started uh, – doing our meat products, I would explain to people, well, that, no, this doesn't go bad. And, and it, it's like explaining something in a language somebody doesn't understand. And so, and then you have to explain the taste. Okay. When you very first try this bacon, Roland, it may, to you, it may seem salty, but 
that's that's uh, people don't realize that how something tastes to them quite often has to do with uh, what minerals their body needs. If you don't need salt, something will taste saltier to you than. And, and what the, our ancestors did, they they adjusted that by soaking it in water or cleaning it off or or whatever. What they didn't do is try to expect some big uh, Smithfield factory to normalize taste so that everybody got the same thing. You know, yeah. I, we, we raise cattle and cattle know when they need a particular mineral and you'll see them uh, they'll lick on a mineral block or they'll lick on a rock mm-hmm. or something like that. They know when they need salt and they know when they're deficient in it. And humans used to be that way. So we added salt when our body required it. But and then uh, all of this got kind of normalized or, or uh, systematized by the food system. And, uh, and and so that, and that of course, that has its own uh, uh, problems with our health mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, too. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, a lot of it was just education, telling people, OK, you're not to take my bacon and go, this is not like the stuff I bought at the store. My bacon is what bacon is. This is what it was when it came over to America. This is what bacon. And what you're tasting is a, is an anomaly in time that uh, you, you might compare that to this. But uh, that's the hardest part to get through to people is that uh, re- recovering your health, recovering your sanity is not about trying to re- rebuild what you already have just a different way. It's actually adopting, you know, our, our Americans have a very narrow taste profile. We've been forced into a salt or sugar, uh, savory or sweet, and that's it. And you, and, you, and you yo-yo back and forth between those two things. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Eastern Europe and in Russia and, and other places, they have a taste profile that's much broader. Mm-hmm. And so sours and um, bitters and things like that are part of an uh, enjoyable food experience. And that's what we're trying to educate people on now is that to recover your health and recover your freedom, you need to also recover what you desire, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the right desires. And, and that involves food and, and, and living and a lot of other things. And that's like a recalibration that everyone has to go through. And it would be hard to go through it <clears throat> if someone else is making all your food for you because that's what you get it's like here's a a guest just just plopped in my belly who is it you know (laughs) instead of you instead of you finding your way and it is kind of like a hero's journey thing like you have to go through it and find your way and earn your return exactly right Right. that's exactly yeah well so i'm really excited to try especially the bacon because i've i mean i've I've had cure real cured sausage before courtesy of uh, yvonne Right. His father, um, but I've never had truly art. real bacon. Real bacon. Yeah, and they need right. a new name for the for the new stuff. That's Ooh, to, yeah, because it, it's tasty. Because it's tasty too, but it's just not going to be the same. And I want uh, I real yeah manufactured industrial age bacon. Industrial, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. That's, that's, sounds good. Yeah, well, it's interesting whenever my uh, my parents go on a trip and they bring something because they found a farmer or somebody who makes something, my dad will say, I got some real, and then he'll say what it is, like I got some right. real cheese curd or I got some real butter. Or I got some, like, He'll introduce it as like, I got some <laughs> real stuff and that's I'm right. saving it because I only go home once or twice a year. I'm saving it for you. So like the last time he was saving some sheep cheese for me it's like i'm saving it for you and it's just it's precious to him because it's real 
but but he grew up on a farm so he's able to now in his mid 60s he still remembers so he has a um a radar he has a real food radar those of those people who have never tasted those foods have no radar so you have to re you have to repopulate their radar well the last time i was there he says do you want some real beer and i said and I said, what, what does that mean? And he said, real beer. It's not, hasn't been processed or anything like that. It's like real beer. Like, like the guy made it real. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah. So then he's gone for like an hour. I'm like, where did he go? She goes, <laughs> Galena says, well, he went to get the real beer. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. He went to the guy's place, yeah. <laughs> you know, with yeah. his own bottle and said, can you fill up this bottle of beer? <laughs> so I right. could take it back to my son-in-law. He's never had real beer before. And then he comes back and it was amazing. It was good. But, you know, it was like a special thing. And he was so excited to, to introduce me to this real product. So, yeah. It's yeah. Awesome. It's like, you know, the, uh, the, the Belgian style, uh, you know, natural beers, mm-hmm. uh, natural ales. You know, I'd started, you know, I start people on those sometimes and I'll say, okay, just taste this. It's got a sour, a sourness to it because it's actually naturally fermented with natural yeast and et cetera. And then, you know, if, if you just, if somebody that's all they've been drinking is Coors Light and you give them something that actually has real flavor, they think that that's bad because they're not, they don't know, they're, they're, they have, and I hate to use the term, but they have retarded taste buds. <laughs> and, uh. It, but there's, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, Galena's uh, father saying, you know, I got the real stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's almost like this club that we're in. Now. <laughs> and it, it really is because I look at people and they, like, they'll they they'll try my stuff and I look at them and when they their eyes go wide open and you can tell this is like a flavor explosion that they haven't experienced and they love it. We're like in the same club now. We like, we know, we you know, you don't have to say anything, you know. And uh, you look at each other and you're like, yep. Yeah. So and good. so when I talk to people, you know, wine is one of those things that's really been industrialized beyond its ability to be recognized anymore as as one of the and I love uh industrial modern wine. I I love the taste of it and all that kind of stuff. But it is not what it was. And there's a uh, a documentary series on uh I think it's on Netflix called The Somme. S O M M S O M M. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of goes through the sommeliers, master sommeliers test and all that. But uh, in the second one, there's a there's a lady who started a vineyard in uh, uh, Italy or someplace. I don't remember France. And she started doing natural wines, actually naturally fermented wines with no adjuncts, no added chemicals. And that's what I've kind of really gotten into lately is actually making an all natural. And, and it's medicine. I mean, this is what they actually it's even in the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. take a little wine for your stomach. It's like the real thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's been uh, uh, something that's been real representative of our whole journey. Yeah. Wow. Is piece really? by piece, what are you putting back together this puzzle, you know? Yeah. But I guess modern Bibles should, they should put a little note in there. Please you take a little sip of ancient wine <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or like right. traditionally not, not produced wine. Well, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to the to the to the bacon. I'm also next time you have, I'm going to pounce on it next time I see it, because I missed the, your window of garlic. I know you have some special garlic that you grow, right? And I'm really excited to try that because I hear it uh, tastes amazing, and but yeah. it's also got some special health qualities compared to store bought. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic garlic. It's a uh, very high allicin count, which is what is the healthy benefit of garlic. Mm-hmm. 
And it's something that's just been kind of almost indigenized here through the years of us growing it. And uh, we've just uh, discovered that this could be a very, very special place for growing this type of garlic. And so uh, it's been really, really good. Uh, And the people that we've created a lot of addicts. (laughs) <laughs> You'll see them online, the people that are that, that, that like the bunker garlic. Unhappily, uh, this year, because of the uh, almost no rain this winter, we're not going to have a crop for sale this year. Mm. We're growing enough to be able to plant again next year, but, but we won't, aren't going to have enough to sell. But uh, we'll still have it, Lord, Lord willing, next year uh, available. And uh, so we have enough for seed. Great. Very good. Awesome. So... Tell us a little bit about your books. I know that you uh, you write fiction and nonfiction, but I was looking a little bit, and uh, Surviving Off-Off-Grid seems like the kind of book that our listeners could really learn from. That uh, book is uh, has been around, I think we published that in 2011. It was a massive bestseller when it first came out. It still sells pretty well, and it's really the philosophy that I've talked about on this program, the whole philosophy of why, what has happened to us and uh, how we got here and why people might want to consider uh, making some changes, and, and, and also some how-to as far as mentally making those changes. Um, and so that book was my first uh, real publishing uh, experience. And then um, uh, a bunch of people started telling me, you know, you, you know, you talk about these scenarios of what could happen in Surviving Off Off Grid, why we might need to live this way, but I don't, I'm, I'm having trouble getting my mind around how that could happen in a modern era. So I wrote a book as a fiction book. It was my first fiction book called The Last Pilgrims. And basically it's a post-apocalyptic book that happens 25 years after a, um, an apop- apocalyptic event that uh, takes out the grid, that takes it out permanently. And basically the world has reverted back to almost 500 years ago and, and, and what that would be like. And so in the book, in a fiction setting, I am able to go through and say, okay, this is how they're getting their water. This is how they're making their food. This is how they're preserving their food and put some real world uh, experiences in in that book. And that book's called The Last Program. And I've got a lot of other, like my Amish sci-fi books, like uh, Brother Frankenstein, Pennsylvania. He sold the film option to the book Pennsylvania. Awesome. Hopefully making it into a movie. And... uh, so there's a lot of other good stuff to read if they like those. Wow. So good. And we're going to link all of those in the show notes, plus some of your um, most standout YouTube videos yeah, so that yeah. people can get to them easy. What is the what is the best way our readers can find you online, learn more about you, and be ready to pounce on your limited supply of, <laughs> of meat and hopefully garlic in the future? Well, now the absolute best way, as you probably know, is on Facebook, just because I'm there pretty, pretty often. Um, uh, and, and you just find me at facebook.com forward slash off grid. And that'll be me. And just follow me there. And I'll uh, and I'm there. I make a lot of jokes. There's a lot of comedy uh, attempts. But uh, there's also. Jokes? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, 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 irony that goes on there. <laughs> But if you want to find out about when I have products for sale, that's uh, I do have a website, michaelbunker.com, but I want to just warn everybody up front that we are just now building that site. It is available. It is there. You can go check out michaelbunker.com. But um, nothing really works yet because we're still working out a lot of the kinks on the new site. There's a lot of free uh, 
there's a free blog there. You can go back a couple of years and uh, a lot of that stuff. But a lot of the things, if you try to like sign up for things other than my email list, it should work. Um, a lot of the links don't work yet because we're still putting it together. Hopefully in the next month, that site will be fully live. Great. That's awesome. We'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. And um, you're going to be able to, if you're listening, well, you're obviously people are listening now. It'll be at eatmovelive52.com slash Michael Bunker. You can find the show, the show notes. And Michael, it was great talking to you. I've learned even more. And I'm just really, uh, really jazzed that you came on the show. Oh, man, it's been fun. It's fun for me to be able to talk about something other than selling books sometimes. <laughs> I would love to have you on again. I feel like there's so much we can talk about, including Russian literature, which I don't know how our listeners are going to feel about. <laughs> right, but we, have, right. we have so many common common things, I feel like, some, somewhere in our, in our um, ancestry and what we're interested in. Um, but I am excited, so excited to meet you and to have a real-life I mean, it's like we need role models for this time, and um, I'm I'm very happy to put you up there on my role model, the wall of role models. Well, I appreciate that very much. It's very kind, and it's been fun. And anytime you guys want me on, just let me know. And we could do, you know, maybe do a show on a particular type of fermentation or oh, I would love know, that. cheese or yeah. <laughs> any of my loves. Do you accept visitors in Texas? We do. Uh, I do. I do warn people that it is probably a little bit rougher than you're imagining uh, in other words we're, we're, uh, a lot of times people have farms uh, and they'll have visitors and it's really uh it is like kind of living the regular life only there's animals like ours dude, is not like dude ranch yeah it, ours is not a dude ranch and it is not fancy uh, we are building infrastructure to someday hopefully have some type of ecotourism where people can and not like a living history farm, but where people can actually come see a working pre-industrial farm and taste the food and maybe work themselves. Maybe learn how to work because that's what I was saying. If I, I would love to work or ferment or do something kind of like in the like you guys can probably use some free labor or some people who are right. happy to pay to do labor for you uh, yeah. and, and learn learn how to do how to dig through a rock or uh, cut, cut cabbage or whatever it is that they can do. Uh, but I would be thrilled to do that on a, when the snakes are not in Texas. If you can just let us know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be very happy to come. We will, uh, we will help you uh, do that. We'll also help you overcome your fear and, and, and endow you with a love for snakes. Oh, thank you. I think that Roland would pay handsomely to anyone who can help me overcome the fear of snakes that makes me climb on top of him and create a very uncomfortable experience every time. I, I'm, just for, I'm just the man for the job, so I will, I'll, I'll be glad to talk to you about it. And it's like anything else. It's a, mental, it's a mental block we can get through. Yeah, it goes back to like our first... Right. You know, yeah. It's like it's I think our, our people all had a bad experience <laughs> historically yeah. with a certain snake. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank well, you. thank you so much, Michael. All right, y'all. Thank you. Bye. If you like today's show and want more episodes like it, you can help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you subscribe. That means iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or in the podcast app on your phone. Do you know somebody who can benefit from today's episode? Share it right now from the show notes, which you can always find at eatmovelive52.com slash notes. And that funk that's playing behind me, it's called Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. 
Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, 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 oh,